And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have ye never read what David did when he had need and was unhungered, he and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which it is not lawful to eat, but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. I believe the democratization of culture and our obsession with freedom has stolen from the church the treasure of the Lord's Day. I confess that this topic sort of angers me. It upsets me that Satan has had so much success convincing so many Christians that no continuing Sabbath rest exists for the Christian. God no longer is our Heavenly Father who carves out time in our schedule so that we may spend time together. Theologians advocating for the dissolution of the Sabbath ironically become Pharisees, deserving of the scorn of the Lord, who says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. And so let us open the door to the kingdom by joyfully reveling in the Lord's day, as the Christian Sabbath. Now, in doing so, I am not going to give you instructions on how the Lord's Day is to be sanctified. There are uh, many different views on that issue. Nevertheless, let us hold fast to the gift of rest. Let us not pit, as some do, the law of Moses against the law of Christ as if Christ were not the God who gave the law to Moses. Christ names himself not as the abolisher of the Sabbath, but as its Lord. The last two stories in this section of conflict deal with Jesus' approach to the Sabbath. In these two stories, he never denies the necessity of the Sabbath or its continuing application, but radically recovers the precious gift of the Sabbath from the legalist who had encumbered it with burdens. That which was to be the rest of God's people had become work. And Jesus reorients this perspective in these conflicts, the first involving his authority and the second describing the Sabbath's character. This first story seems so pointless and petty in some aspects that we find it rather curious. Jesus responds, his response causes us some perplexity concerning what it means. Some have even reached the faulty conclusion uh, regarding this story. And so let us seek to understand, to understand their attack, to understand the argument, and to understand his authority. To understand their attack, understand the argument and to understand the authority, his authority. What ties the religious elite in knots about the conduct they observe on the Sabbath? What gives them uh, such problems that they have to speak? 
To understand their complaint, we must consider what they said and what they condemned. Nearly every verse in this story, ironically, involves some manner of controversy. Look at verse 23. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. What may seem a straightforward story in our translation is the result of answers to hard questions regarding the text. Suffice it to say that some have suggested that this verse should read that the disciples were actually making a path for Jesus through a barley field. While this is a possible reading of the Greek, it doesn't fit the parallel passages. Mark begins with an old Hebraistic form, and it was, and it came to pass. It begins a new section, but one in which we can trace a progression of thought through the conflict stories. From the healing of the, physician, of the paralytic, a physician who meets with sinners at a feast, a feast uh, being approved over against a fast, and the idea of eating on the Sabbath day. You see the idea from healing to feasting to uh, the idea of eating on the Sabbath. As Jesus' entourage travels on the Sabbath day, the disciples, not Jesus notably, begin picking the heads of grain. And a parable passage tells us that they are eating them in Luke 6, verse 1. Now, it won't matter until later, but Mark says nothing about their being hungry, although Matthew does. What the disciples did was ordinarily lawful. They are not being accused of stealing. In Deuteronomy 23, we read, When thou comest unto the standing corn of thy neighbor, then thou mayest pluck the ears with thine hand, but thou shalt not move a sickle upon thy neighbor's standing corn. As long as you use nothing but your hands, you can kind of eat as much grain as you want. In the Lord's land of milk and and honey, no one goes hungry. The least amount of discomfort of hunger, if you feel like a snack, the land stays open. It's the Lord's land, it's the Lord's bounty that he's giving to his people. It is the Lord's love, his grace, and his gift to his people. It is a law that demonstrates his beneficent abundance. And then the Pharisees appear and spoil the right vision of the Lord in his character. In verse 24, And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? As a beginning aside, imagine what it would have been like for the disciples when they heard the Pharisees and their carping. How would the food not have turned in their mouths to ashes? They're sitting there eating, and they hear what the, ra- the Pharisees are saying, and they, say, they think to themselves, well, we just got our rabbi in trouble. We just got Jesus in trouble. They may have had no idea that what they were doing could ever be criticized, and now their rabbi is facing the Pharisees and their condemnation. How low must they have felt? And now the commentators like to notice the ambiguity of the, the complaint this starts a battle of, over the use of the term right existent in the Greek. You see it in verse uh, 24, verse 26, and again in chapter 3, verse 4. 
in these stories about the Sabbath day, what is, it, what is right or not right or not lawful to do on the Sabbath? The ambiguity allows commentators to waste ink about what it is that is the object of the Pharisees' criticism. Some have suggested even that it is not in the distance that they are traveling. Instead, the context, aside from the making of the path, shows that the thing that they are objecting to is the plucking of the grain. And the basis for their argument seems to be from Exodus chapter 34. Six days thou shalt work, but on the seventh day thou shalt rest, in earing time and in harvest thou shalt rest. Here, not only when you plow, but when you harvest, you are to rest. That time of activity when you would think you'd be excused because uh, you need to get things done, uh, yet the Lord says, no, you are to rest. Here, they are harvesting, and if you look at the Talmud and the, the way in which it describes what harvesting is and defines it for you, which probably represents the Pharisaical view in, this, in the first century, any removal of the fruit from uh, any growing plant thing is considered to be harvest. And when you read this, it sounds really thin. It doesn't sound like they have a lot of biblical basis for their objection. It barely is tangential to the idea of harvest. The Pharisees are reflecting this Talmudic practice, placing barriers around any possible infringement of the commandments in order to encourage people not to come anywhere near where they might hint of work. They recognize that uh, they are not to work on the Sabbath day, and so they put boundaries further out from anything that might even come close to what could be possibly thought of as work. If you want to know how detailed and how, in some ways, you could think ridiculous their laws get, you all... Uh, points you to the relative provisions of the Talmud that you can look up online. Regulations are very extensive. For one of the ways in which we have seen the theft of the Lord's Day, it has occurred from personal practices becoming church tradition and ex then expectation and then morality. It begins with a good sentiment, I should do this in order to keep the Lord's day holy. And then it morphs into, we should do this in order to keep the Lord's day holy. And then the church should do this. And then the church tradition is that we should do this. And then the church expects you to do this, to keep the Lord's day holy. And finally, you sin if you do not do this in order to keep the Lord's day holy. Such is the blight of Pharisaism. Now, it is good to have personal standards and practices and habits in all areas of our obedience and sanctification. That is part of our sanctifying process to develop practices and habits of behavior. I hope you all have a habit of prayer and reading of God's word. It is good to make plans for our improvement and obedience to God. Neither is it wrong to help others with advice you have culled from what you have found beneficial in your spiritual life. But we cross a line when we demand others practice a discipline not mandated by Scripture. I get up 
early in the morning to read my Bible. But it would be wrong for me to say everyone has to get up early to read their Bible. You may not be a morning person. You may be a late person. You can wake up at 3 a.m. in order to read your Bible and then go back to sleep. When we make our practices the norm and demand it of others, we are doing what the Pharisees did. We are assuming an authority that we do not have. So we understand their attack, but secondly, I want to understand the argument that Jesus makes. The battle of authority unlocks the difficulty with understanding the meaning of Jesus' argument against their accusation. He uses the example of David in what may seem to us a rather strange way. We must follow the argument through the description of David's history to David's authority. Jesus refers the the Pharisees to an Old Testament event in verse 25. He said unto them, Have ye never read what David did when he had need and was in hunger, he and they that were with him? This introduction takes us all the way back to the days in which Saul reigned. David flees after Jonathan with a round of archery, uh, warns him of his father's murderous intentions. He runs so fast when he comes to the place where presumably the tabernacle arrives, he does does so in hunger. The hunger of David isn't noted in the passage found in 1 Samuel 21, but his request for bread is, and it certainly demonstrates that he needed food. He and his troop needed food. And it's the next verse that drops us back into controversy. Look at verse 26. How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the priest, high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful, to eat before the priests. First, we don't have any record of David's entry into the temple in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Second, the house of God usually refers to the temple rather than the tabernacle. And thirdly, the person that David speaks to in 1 Samuel 21 is Ahimelech and not Abiathar. So how do we understand Jesus' statement? We cannot say that Jesus made a mistake, nor that Mark made a mistake. For to do so either is to draw into question the infallibility of Christ or the infallibility of God's word. Now for Mark's Roman, presumably Gentile audience, they probably wouldn't have even have this on their radar. They wouldn't have recognized any of these problems. But let's think about it. First, the idea to enter could include a wide range of meeting, and given the story, we cannot eliminate the possibility that David did, in fact, enter the tabernacle, although it's not recorded there in 1 Samuel 21. Second, often David in the Psalms will refer to the house of God even when the temple is not yet built and referring to the tabernacle, and so the idea that he went into the house of God shouldn't disturb us over much. But the question that causes the commentators The most indigestion comes from the mention of Abiathar as the high priest. After this event, Saul executes all of Abiathar's family. Doeg the Edomite is there being held prisoner, waiting for his trial, and he goes and reports to Saul everything that happens, and Saul sends and captures all of uh, Abiathar's uh, family, the high priest Ahimelech and all of his sons, 
except for Abiathar, and Saul condemns them to death, but all of Saul's soldiers absolutely refuse to kill uh, the, the priests of God. Doeg the Edomite, apparently, uh, since he was already in prison, has no such compulsions and uh, gleefully uh, destroys them all, and only Abiathar is left, making him the high priest, and he goes into exile with David. Now, the Greek here is slightly ambiguous, giving some the ability to widen the idea into uh, a translation so like the days of Abiathar, who became the high priest, instead of when Abiathar was the high priest. But what none of the commentators seem to consider, what none of them, what question they never answer is why Jesus and Mark mentions him at all. Why does Mark include the mention of Abiathar in his gospel when both Matthew and Luke, when they talk about this very incident, don't mention him at all? Why does Mark mention an ancient high priest to a presumably Roman Gentile audience with limited knowledge of Israel's history? For all of the gospel writers, it seems to be least like Mark to put this detail in here. To answer this question, let's consider what argument Jesus uses in this story to support. How, in verse 26, he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the priest and did eat the showbread which is not lawful to eat before the priests and gave also to them which were with him. First, we see the parallel between the accusation of the Pharisees and Jesus' judgment about the behavior of David. The Pharisees said, your disciples are doing what is not lawful. Jesus said, David did what was not lawful. The exact same phrase. Second, we see the parallel between David's feeding of his men and the eating of the disciples. Many see Jesus here justifying his breaking of the Sabbath laws with David's breaking of the ceremonial laws, but I adamantly disagree. Jesus is not saying that David broke the law, so I can too. That is not what Jesus is saying. While other parallel passages mention the disciples being hungry, Mark does not. And it breaks the easy parallelism between the current event and the past. Those the past appears, thus the past appears not as justification of the practice, but as a statement of authority. Jesus is using the authority of David as a foundation for his authority. He is arguing from a lesser to a greater. A lesser authority that the Pharisees would recognize to a greater authority, which they aren't. That is why I think the king and the high priest are mentioned together. It's why Mark mentions Abiathar. To the Roman Gentile audience who probably knew David and who also probably understood the role of the high priest. Abiathar is chosen due to his presence at the time and because of his intimate association with David. David, when he comes to power, Abiathar will be installed as the high priest. Both of these sources of authority countenance what Jesus judges to be a violation of the law of God. Abiathar and David, those whom the Pharisees would have said, these guys are, eight, are righteous men, 
Jesus said, yeah, but they did something that they weren't supposed to do. Both king and high priest are considered by the Pharisees to be right actors. Moreover, they both have the anointing of God upon their heads. Both the Biathar, the priest, and David, the king, to be, have been anointed. And now the Messiah, the anointed one, has arrived. The perfection of all the anointed one has appeared. Does he not have greater authority than either David or Abiathar? If the Pharisees gave these two ancient spiritual giants the benefit of the doubt for what Jesus sees as a clear violation of the law, should they not extend the greater consideration to Jesus when he interprets the law, when he ignores their petty traditions? Why did they give David and Abiathar a pass? Why did they not see them? Because there is the assumption that the anointed of the Lord would do what's right and would interpret the law of the Lord appropriately for his people. And they are right to do so. But here there is the greater anointed of the Lord. Here is the one who bears greater authority than David or Abiathar. Here is the one who will speak the definitive interpretation and practice of the Sabbath for the people of God. This is the crucial point to understanding the continuing import of the Sabbath, that the God who spoke at Sinai is the God who speaks these words. It is inexcusable to pit the word of God at Sinai against the word of God who is the incarnate Jesus. The Son of God participated in the giving of the law to Moses. Therefore, he does not abrogate his own law, but affirms, interprets, and applies it. The Word is the Word is the Word. The Word at Sinai is the Word incarnate as Christ, is the Word of God which we hold in our hands. This authority we recognize in unbroken cord from Genesis to Revelation. Its history, inspiration, and preservation command our allegiance. We recognize no higher authority than God. His word, the sole means by which he has chosen to make himself and his will known unto man until Christ returns. I read somewhere someone trying to anchor the moral law of Moses in his administration to his administration of the covenant of grace. But do we not see the Sabbath anchored in the very act of creation? The word incarnate will not erase the word proclaimed, but will interpret it rightly, restoring it from the traditions of man and renewing its beauty. And the authority speaks of God's plenty that he lavishes on his people. If you think about it, Jesus could have chosen any number of stories in the Old Testament to base his authority on, to prove his authority over the Sabbath day. But he chose one that dealt with the showbread. He chose this particular one. Yes, it was only for the priest. Yes, David was not supposed to eat it. But Jesus uses it to remind the people of the meaning of that showbread that God feeds his people. 
How dare the Pharisees with their man-made rule rob the Sabbath of the gift of plenty that it symbolized to a slave nation? The Pharisees were plucking out of the Sabbath its very heart. Could there be a greater profanation of the Sabbath than their attack against what the disciples are doing? Is there a better use of a divine authority than to give the Sabbath bread and rest to God's weary people? The Sabbath is a declaration of God's goodness and gift and provision and love for his people. And the Pharisees had made it a chore. The Pharisees were, as a metaphor, taking the bread of life out of the Sabbath. Just as they are doing with, his, with the Lord's disciples. And God is giving the bread of life back to his people. Giving the bread of rest and the Sabbath back to it. And that's what the Lord of the Sabbath does. As we understand their attack and understand the Lord's argument, let us also understand his authority. Jesus states the creational nature of the Sabbath as he announces his divine authority over the day. Jesus' argument for the purpose of the Sabbath uses the chronology of, the, of creation in verse 27. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. What came first, the creation of man or the creation of the Sabbath? Well, a brief look at Genesis 1 and 2 will quickly inform you that man was made on day 6 and the Sabbath established on day 7. Therefore, the, man was, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The beneficial impact of the Sabbath to man appears in the commandment in Deuteronomy. As the Lord says the fourth commandment to Israel through Moses, And remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God brought thee up out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. In essence, the Lord is telling Israel, when you keep the Sabbath day, you are to remember the years in which you had no rest. The Lord is giving his people rest to remember his goodness. The Lord's requirement for the Sabbath observance were not given to forbid activity, but to make time to remember and worship. People of God, please hear me. Our practices and habits that we develop for the Lord's day ought not be devised as some act of mere obedience. If we, do not, if we do not, by our practice, spend time we liberate in the presence of God, all of our observance becomes mere empty formalism. If you are not spending the time you liberate on the Lord's day in the presence of the Lord, what are you doing it for? What are you resting for? It may feel righteous as 
I've read once, I think it was in Farmer Boy by Laura Ingalls Wilder, that they had a parlor that they only went into on the Lord's Day, and they had to sit there all day looking at their shoes, basically. That might make you feel pious, but if you, that is all you're doing on the Lord's Day, and you're not spending it in the Lord's presence, then it violates the principle of the Lord's Day as much as if you were plowing a field. Yes, plowing a field is worse, because then you are flouting the Lord's Day before men, but you have just replaced one way of avoiding the presence of the Lord with another. The man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And the most important thing that I, can, I would want you to get out of the sermon is to understand that the Lord's day is a blessing for you, that rest on the Lord's day is a blessing for you to enjoy. Jesus asserts his divine nature implicitly in his devastating claim of being Lord of the Sabbath. In verse 28, And therefore the Son of Man is Lord also, of the Sabbath. He places himself as superior to the Pharisees in defining and describing and giving rules for the Sabbath. This anointed one, this son of man, this divine person from Daniel, his favorite description, probably because it doesn't have any connection to the other messianic titles that were being used in rebellion against uh, Roman rule. The one that, that Jesus chooses to say, I am a different kind of Messiah from all those other ones who are just people who want to revolt against the, the Romans. I am the anointed one, and I have come as this divine person from Dan, of Daniel, described in Daniel, who stands as the greater than David and Abiathar, the final arbiter and interpreter and applier of the law of God in the Sabbath day. I am the one, Jesus says, who is able to definitively tell you what the Sabbath means, show you how it is to be observed, and what good is to be found there. But is there perhaps more here? Is Jesus saying something in addition? It's interesting. The last time Mark used the term kurios, the term Lord, appeared in chapter 1, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. It's a quotation from Isaiah. It's an establishment of this word as being a mark of divinity. For Jesus is not only the ruler of the Sabbath, the interpreter of the Sabbath, the applier of the Sabbath, he is finally the purpose of the Sabbath, the one who gives the rest of the Sabbath, the one that the Sabbath is set aside for us to enter into his presence. He is the Lord, Yahweh. He is the God of the Old Testament who carved out that day to be with his people, to give them rest. My friend, you have no rest outside of Jesus. We live in the relentless pursuit of peace, and we try to find it in anything but God. But this pursuit only makes us more guilty, driving us away from the one and only source of peace. We grow even more distraught, knowing that our crimes make us worthy of death and hell. But Jesus is God made man. 
He lived the sinless life that we should have lived. He died and suffered the hell that we deserve to suffer. He rose from the dead to assure us of peace with God and rest in Him. By faith, you may enter into that rest. Do you believe that what Jesus did, He did for you? Will you repent of your sin and seek rest in Him? Christian, the Lord's day is the time Jesus separates for us to rest in him. It is his time appointed for us to practice heaven. It is a foretaste of what it means to be his people gathered together and worshiping him. And that is what heaven is about. How foolish can we be to abandon heaven's foretaste? What would we allow to stop us from hurrying into the presence of our Savior? Yes, life happens. The God of providence puts things in our day that require our attention. And I don't know about you, but I find myself growing more and more as I age intolerant of distractions, more and more condemning of my own carelessness about the presence of our, my Savior. I've rarely sought to tell you what to do or not to do on the Lord's Day. And that, I'll continue to be like that, FYI. Because my abiding, burning goal is to convince you of the reality of the Lord's Day. That there is such a thing. That I would have you to be theologically committed to its biblical foundation. And having that commitment, I want you then to have a vision of the blessing of the Lord's Day. I want to show you what to pursue on the Lord's Day rather than what to avoid. I want to show you where the blessing of the Sabbath is to be found. I want the glory of the risen Savior choosing this day for you to be with him to so entrance you that no distraction will dissuade you from chasing after him. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the glory of our Savior. It encourages us with the vision of rest in the finished work of Jesus. In the bread and the cup we see the crucified body and the shed blood that he set that set us free. In these elements, we remember that we, like Israel, have been set free. And this day is given to us to remind us of that. And this event is given to us to remind us of our freedom and of our rest. We partake in tangible form to the food and joy that God lavishes on his people. God is still feeding his people on the Sabbath day. God is still feeding his people on the Lord's day. And how right it is for us to gather around the table and remember that we have access, that that which would have been forbidden from, for David is now granted to us. That that holy bread, that holy cup that Jesus sanctified by his life and death is given freely to all of his people. But it is given to us also to remember its cost. The broken body, the shed blood of our Savior, 
which he gave for our benefit. It is not a mistake that God chooses food to speak to us about himself. That which cost him everything is given to us to restore our humanity, to restore our physical bodies and our souls. It is given to us as the good gift of the good God who gives us his supper on his day. Let's pray together. Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of this day, forgive us when our traditions rob us and others of the joy and glory of your good gifts. Pledge us again to obedience to your word. Restore the vision of your glory in this day. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.